This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 274. And the quote of the day is from Peter Jackson, who said, Everybody's life has these moments where one thing leads to another. Some are big and obvious, and some are small and seemingly insignificant. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I appreciate you checking this out. If you haven't already, if you dig the podcast, do me a favor and head over to iTunes and just leave a quick rating review for the podcast. What that does, that helps more people find out about the podcast, and it shows up higher in the search results and all that kind of fun stuff. So that would be a huge favor to me if you would like to help support the podcast. If you want to go one step further and you really want to support the podcast uh, financially, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash support. And there's a way for you to donate a dollar a month, $2 a month, $5 a month, all the way up to a hundred dollars a month. And for that, you will receive special gifts and, and special perks from me from drummers resource. So you can do that at drummersresource.com forward slash support and every Every dollar helps. So if you can only do a dollar a month or $2 a month, that is amazing. I would hope that you do it a little more than that, but if that's all you can swing, I get it and and I appreciate it. So uh, you again, you can do that at drummersresource.com forward slash support. Now let's get into the conversation today with Brian Dunn. And Brian is the current drummer for Hall & Oates, and he's also the drummer for Live from Daryl's House. I don't know if you ever heard of this program, and if you haven't, man, you got to check it out. It is Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates and the Hall & Oates band, and they bring in different guest artists, and they play some of Daryl's songs, or they'll play some Hall & Oates songs, and then they'll play some of the guest artist songs. And they've had everybody from Joe Walsh to uh, Pat from Train. They've had uh, uh, Rob Thomas. They've had CeeLo. I mean, all sorts of people that have that have come in there. Wyclef has been there. Todd Rundgren, uh, Booker T. Jones, Grace Potter. And it's just an amazing program. We talk about it a lot in this conversation. Let me give you a little bit of backstory on Brian before he started playing with Hall & Oates and before he started doing the live from Daryl's House stuff. He's a New York native and he has been performing with a wide range of people through the name that he's made for himself in that area. He was the drummer for Average White Band, Patty Austin, played with Bobby Caldwell, Ariana Grande, Nelson Wrangle, a, a long list of people. He's also done concerts and TV shows, backing people like Patti LaBelle, Shaka Khan, Flo Rida, Ashanti, Ja Rule, Belle Bib DeVoe, JoJo, Sharon Jones, and again, a long list of, of A-list people. And He's also worked on some major motion picture and television shows and things like that. So definitely has a wide range of experience and uh, has worked with a bunch of different artists in a bunch of different styles, which is really interesting to me as well. So this conversation is great. He talks about the winding road of how he built his career and how the Hall Notes thing happened. He talks a lot about the live from Daryl's house stuff and how that works internally as you know, from behind the scenes and things like that. So really fun interview, a really great interview. And we, and we get into it. This is, this is a bit of a long interview, which I, I really enjoy because Brian and I just started going off and, and got really deep into the conversation. So I appreciate it. And I hope that you dig this as much as I enjoy doing it. So here we go with the one and only Brian Dunn. 
Brian Dunn, welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing, man? I am doing well. So you guys right now are, you said you're in Cleveland, Ohio, right? Yeah. So are you going to go, uh, you going to go check out the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, this trip, I'm not. We it's did, I did last time I was here. That's in Cleveland, right? Yeah. Yeah, I always, I always forget if it's in Cleveland or in, uh, what's the other Ohio city, whatever. We're not going to test my geography right now. <laughs> uh, so first I want to build, I want to build a little bit of context and a little bit of backstory. I know that you've been playing with Hall Notes for, you know, how long have you been playing with them now? Um, seven and a half years. Seven eight. and a half years. Awesome. Uh, I know I know you're the house drummer for Live at Daryl's house and I know you have you've you know worked with Average White Band and all that stuff but let's let's rewind a little bit um uh, you're originally from New York right Yeah So tell tell me tell the audience just a little bit sort of how you got the bug for drumming you know how you got into it and and sort of how that road went and then we can start and then I definitely want to get into the the work that you're doing now Okay um both my older brothers are drummers. So from for as long as I can remember, there was always band rehearsals going on in my basement, and there was always drum sets set up at all times. Um, I mean, I'm I'm actually the youngest of seven. Kids, oh wow! And even my four sisters, everybody's everybody was into music. Everybody was always listening to music. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, man, I was just always around it, and my brothers they were really into it and they would they would go through phases where they'd get into a specific drummer or style of music and they they would they would go out and buy every record possible right. and i was the recipient of all this stuff so if my brother when my brother got into you know first they were they were listening to bad company and zeppelin and that kind of stuff and then my brother discovered steve gad mm-hmm. and which meant every record he could find with him on it, you know, and, and that, that meant that I was introduced to Steely Dan or Al Jarreau or, you know, every, you know, it's ridiculous how many different kinds of music he played. So yeah. for me, I was the recipient of older siblings that were into it before me. So you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because I had mentioned off air that, um, that I had Rodney Howard on the show and we were talking about the influence that older siblings have and how it sort of helps your your musical taste mature maybe faster than if you didn't have an older brother or sister. You know, like I had mentioned, I grew up in, you know, I'm, I'm an 80, I was born in 81. So uh, my brother, who's six years older than me, was listening to a bunch of hip hop and he was listening to like all this old, like, I mean, now it's considered old school hip hop. But I was listening to that when I was like nine, you know, right. and it's, it's just amazing <laughs> that how how tastes are influenced by older siblings because i'm guessing that you know at whatever age you were when you were getting when you were listening to bad company or zeppelin you may not have been listening to that had your older siblings not been listening to it right definitely not definitely and, not and yeah. i'm guessing I, I have an older brother too so i'm guessing that you did the same thing where you're like whatever my older brother does i want to do yep i want to listen to the same music he gets into skateboarding i want to skateboard he started drumming that's why i started drumming you know it's like whatever yep. they're doing um, it's just an interesting concept that that because Rodney had the same had the same thing where he was like I had older older siblings and they're giving me records listening to them, you know. And yep. now I think for people who don't have older siblings, maybe it's like you have to go out and do this sort of self discovery and and find all of this stuff on your own, you know. Yep, yep, yep. And my the other thing that that helped me was my brother Kevin was at a pretty early age he was playing he was doing wedding gigs mm-hmm. and 
so then he started getting me on them when I was young. I was like 14, 15 years old, and my father would drive oh, wow. me on the weekends to do wedding gigs. Um, and that was that was a really good education because it's you know a lot of times when you're 14, 15, you're playing either you're playing in a basement or you're playing uh, in the school jazz ensemble or something. Mm-hmm. But playing professional gigs um, at that young of an age, it you you learn quickly. Yeah, you know, to what you really need to do. <laughs> of course, and you know, I think that you're also getting you're getting pulled up the mountain, so to speak, with older with your older siblings. They're like, "Come on, man! Like, you got to learn how to play this stuff." And yeah, may maybe got pushed a little harder, or I mean, they talk about athletes who play with um, who are at the edge of their age bracket where they end up being like the dominant one because they're the same age, but they're, but they're a little bit older and they get pulled up by the older, by the older uh, athletes who are around them. It's like lifting with somebody who's stronger than, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, but like 13, 14 years old, your gig, like your friends are like going to the movies and you're like, Oh man, sorry. I got a gig this week. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. There were many, there were many Saturday afternoons where I would have to, split by four o'clock sorry bro i got a cocktail hour (laughs) oh my god i was not and the thing is it wasn't like i was happy about going there oftentimes that was the last thing i wanted to do oh really well just because if i was in the hangout mode with my buddies i was like oh my god i gotta go but then you know once i got there of course it was sure it was fine and you know it turned out to be a really good thing for me so right so what was what was sort of your your practice routine? Was it more um, was it more like by the book, or was it more just shedding, playing along with records, and and all that sort of stuff? Um, well, when I was when I was young, when I was let's say fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and mm-hmm. those at that time, I did. My brother taught me how to read. Actually, even before that, like I was reading early. I was like in second grade, third grade, and I was reading music at that point. Um, and you know, rudiments and my brother was always around the house teaching me Mm -hmm. and the last, and I took lessons with a guy named Al Miller out on Long Island. Okay. Um, who's a great, he was a great teacher. Um, but it was all, everything revolved around reading at that point and, um, and technique, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and by the time I was in seventh grade, it all stopped. And, and I, I, from that point on, I was just playing a record, um, so I got the reading thing happening very early and I kind of abandoned it, abandoned it. And I didn't, I wasn't really studying with anybody either mm-hmm. until I got to college. Okay. And when I got to college, I studied with this guy, Ron Gould, um, at Nassau Community College, who was a, he's a classical percussionist. His names um, came, come up a few times on the podcast. Yeah. So. You know, um, Tommy Breckline studied with him and Rod Morgenstein studied with him. Okay. Um, he was... I mean, by a light year, the the best teacher I've ever had. Huh. And huh. he he uh, and he wasn't a drum set guy, and I and I didn't have much of an interest in playing classical percussion, but I had to do it because that's what was that that's what the program was. Right. Were and, you a performance um, major? Uh, well, for the, for the first two years, yeah. Yeah. Then I got a music ed degree. Okay. But um, did you you, smart, you smartened up? I I was a performance major and I was sitting there and I'm like playing bongos at eight o'clock in the morning with like nine other people who don't care about percussion. There was just an elective. And I was like, what am I doing? 
You know, so yeah, I, I, ended, I, don't, I have this weird thing and I'm probably going to get a ton of emails about this. So, uh, but I, I think that getting a performance degree, I, I think that there's a, a better avenue that you can go down and still get the perform. Cause like if you're a music ed major, you can still do all the performance classes or even yep. like I was a business major. I moved from, from performance to literally business, not music business, business and but still took all of the performance classes so i got my minor in performance anyway so like i don't think that you have to just go down the road of performance i think that yeah. i think that people should sort of couple that with something else whether it be music business or or music ed or or just business yeah. or whatever philosophy i don't you know whatever yeah yeah i mean the thing that, uh, when i a lot of friends i have that went the route of the performance thing um or the 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 good the good music college, mm-hmm. um, whether be it Berkeley or North Texas or Miami or Manhattan. Um, the one thing I, I, I started to realize was a lot of these guys, their experience was more about who they went to school with, not necessarily the teacher there, yeah. not, not the degree they got, but the, the clique they became a part of the sure. family that they became a part of. And, and that's what keeps giving back to them years later. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you went to a school like Berkeley with a certain group of people and you were part of that group of people that were very good, you know, 15 years down the line, these people are doing great things. And they're still and working still, together. And they're still part. You're part of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's something I was I've actually never been a part of because I didn't do I didn't do the school thing like that. But right. I was able to get my way into those circles without mm-hmm. having to go that route. Yeah, that's so. that I agree with you 100% because of how many people I've had on here who went to Berkeley, who went to, you know, Texas, who went to University of Miami or whatever, and they said, "Oh yeah, well I went to school with this person and this person and this person and they were, you know, 10 years later they were in this band and they hired me for this thing and then I got this gig through this and it's like this this network that you develop uh whether it be, you know, I think it's sort of the same as, you know, gigging in a town heavily. If you're in New York or if you're if if you're sort of from that area and you've grown up there and you build this network of great players and then, you know, those networks can last forever. So there's yeah. definitely pros and definitely some pros and cons of of the music school avenue. But I I agree with you that the the networks and the just the, the group of people that you can get around is invaluable. Yeah, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. But... Oh, my God. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not free. But, uh, you know whatever that's a whole different conversation um so the the one thing that you had mentioned is you managed to get your way into there so i want to talk how do you go from being 13 14 year old 14 years old playing wedding gigs to playing with hall notes or to playing with average white band or or any of these guys i realize that's a loaded question and and it's a long journey but let's i i'd love to hear sort of how that progression happened um well you know in the in the New York wedding scene, there's especially, especially, you know, it's been a long time now. I keep forgetting how old I am. Um, <laughs> how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 46. Okay. Because you're, I mean, you're younger than the guys in the band, right? Yeah. Actually, me and Shane, the guitar player, are the same age. Okay. Within like three days of each other. But yeah, everybody else is, is uh, you know, a little older. Mm-hmm. The, well, a lot older, actually. Yeah. Right. But, um. For me, you know, the wedding scene, every once in a while, you, I would meet, I would meet, you know, a really, really great player, you know, uh, whether it was a horn sub or something like that. I can remember the first time I met a horn player named Dave Mann, 
Um, and he was, that was, he was one of the first guys that really helped me, um, from being sort of completely unknown Long Island drummer, um, to him introducing me to, to, to his brother, Ned. I don't know if you know a uh, Dave man or Ned man. I Ned used to play the... bass with Michelle Camilo. Okay. Um, I think Dave and... man sounds familiar. Yeah. Dave used to play with Dave. He's played with so many people. Um, where does he, he play with Tower for a while? He lives in Manhattan. He, they're from Michigan, um, but he's lived in Manhattan for many, many years. Um, man, that name sounds really familiar. Man, he's played with so many people. He's such a great musician, and and I can remember, you know, meeting him on a club date, and and for whatever reason, he liked what he heard, and I already knew who he was, you know, mm-hmm. and he invited me and the piano player at the time to go hang out with him and his brother and we at that point it was like wow i can't believe i'm playing with dave mann you know right and then that turned into him having a conversation with this other sax player named nelson rangel who uh is a contemporary jazz sax player flute player and dave um i guess nelson was looking for a drummer and dave recommended me and literally just from dave saying yeah you should you should you should use this guy this guy Nelson Rangel just called me from Adam and said, "Yeah, come out. I want you to be in my band." Nice. <laughs> like literally that, like that. Just from having. See, I guess it depends on when somebody, if the person who's recommending you is respected, it's amazing what that will do. Mm-hmm. So Dave was one of the first guys that hooked me up in that way. Right. You know, and that it, it just it completely. And I was hanging around at the Fifty Five Bar a lot mm-hmm. at that point. Um, now the years. It was a whole different group of people that, that are down there now or right. even in the last 10 years. When I was hanging out down at the 55 bar, and if you were a drummer in New York at that point, you were going to the 55 bar and you were checking out Zach Danziger yep. and Rodney Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I met Tim Lefevre down there. And, 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 and so I made a lot of friends from that kind of – I was hanging in that that those circles right right um, like the, the wayne Krantz, oz Noy, were they were exactly, they all down there yeah yep and i used to even this is way before oz even oh okay and, okay yeah and um this is like in 1988 oh wow okay yeah so so this um, is all like pre like keith carlock and yeah and all that because yeah. he didn't come until yep. like the 90s right yeah, yeah yeah exactly so i i was hanging around you know i used to su- i used to play with laney with tim on sundays i used to sub for 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 lionel cordu whenever lionel couldn't do the gig i used to play with laney down there nice. and um and then that that was another circle of people and that you know it kind of led to my affiliation with this great jazz guitar player named chuck Loeb. Mm-hmm. um and zach was the drummer in chuck Loeb's band yeah, yeah and when and when zach left the band tim got me in chuck's band you know nice. what i mean and it so each each step of the way, it, it kind of – it's funny that at that point, too, I wasn't playing any music with singers. Um, All I mean, instrumental. I was doing, yeah, I was doing club dates, but I was playing instrumental music. I was mm-hmm. like I, – I lived in Brooklyn. I was really friendly with a big, great bass player named Mike Pope, mm-hmm. and we were playing fusion, <laughs> you know, and playing straight ahead, and and – I then got into a club date band that had – it was the first band that I had ever been in with people that were playing real R&B music mm-hmm. at a super high level. And you Were know, you into within, that kind of music? 
I've always been into that kind of music. Okay. But I it's was kind of hard not I to was, be. But. Yeah, I know. And I got so into, but I was so into instrumental music at the time, and I'm such a Michael Brecker fan, and you know, I was so into that world. But then, luckily, again, because of that guy Dave Mann, he was happened to play in this club date band, and the I, I remember the bass player in the band was this guy Artie Reynolds, um, and I remember within seconds of playing, I was like whoa that is ridiculous playing <laughs> and and uh so i at that point i i'm like i would close my mouth and just take in everything that him and the singers these uh, the, the, this late this this girl named jenny douglas and john james and paul brown like these are all people that were working heavily in the r&b world mm-hmm. um a world that i was had no part in whatsoever you know no real part and uh so yeah, so my affiliation with Artie led to hooking up with Ray Chu, who's the musical director for uh, Dancing with the Stars mm-hmm. um, and American Idol. And the guy who you see ba- play bass with anything that Ray Chu does is this guy, this guy Artie Reynolds. Oh, okay. So I started, you know, and then you know, again, maybe because I I was I would always defer to him, um, and he made me. Uh, he was one of these guys that, like, even on a club date, if if he turned around, he he got a sense that you weren't given like a thousand percent. If you were playing a cha cha, and if it wasn't like the last cha cha you're ever gonna play in your life, he was visibly pissed off at you. <laughs> so, I mean, any moment. And what that did was it it create and everybody in the band was that way. It created a vibe like you don't kind of turn on your A game when you feel like it. Right. Constantly have that going. Yeah, you can't and, lay and, down. And, yeah, and at the and that at the same time, it wasn't like it was very. It wasn't tight. It wasn't like we didn't have fun. Mm-hmm. But it was like just don't 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 come here to mess around. Like play. Yeah, you know. And um, so for me, it was again, it was a great situation to kind of find myself in. Mm-hmm. You know, and take it. I took advantage of it. That's the bottom line. When it, when when I recognize somebody, the guy next to me is really dealing. I'm gonna take advantage of that. You mm-hmm. know. There's a, one other bass player I want to mention, this guy, Jerry Brooks, who is a monster. And he he's the one that got me into this club called Cafe Wa mm-hmm. um, in Manhattan. And that's a that's a two, it's like Tuesday night funk night. And that's a gig I've been doing for like literally 15 years. Really? Um, yeah. And when I'm on the road. How do I miss like, that? I just moved from there. Yeah, I, I've been doing Tuesday nights down there for literally 15 years. Wow. Um, and uh I mean, I miss a lot of the gigs because I'm on the road, but mm-hmm. they they don't fire me, thank God. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, and we play basically it's 70s and 80s R&B music, and Jerry's not there anymore, but the band that's there now is great as well. Right. Um, some of the members are holdovers, mm-hmm. but um, I remember like that was yet another pocket of musicians that I was not a part of, and because of Jerry, you know, he got me in there. Jerry is the bass player on the D'Angelo Live at the Jazz Cafe. Ah, uh, okay, okay. That's Jerry. Um, and actually, the drummer from that is a guy named Abe Fogel. Oh, um, Abe. Abe, play, Abe lately has been playing with Rob Thomas over the last couple of years. Okay. Um, but he did the live. He, Him and Jerry were doing, I think, uh, the Brown when Brown Sugar came out. I mm-hmm. think they were touring with D'Angelo at that point. This is prior to Pino and uh, yeah. Quest. Yeah. And, uh. But Jerry, man, yo, talk about time police. Yeah. Oh my god. 
But it was great because I can remember that's something I always thought I I had was really I've you know I've always had pretty decent time. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of playing with clicks, a lot of playing with programmed material, um, and and I had the the had you know my brother would you know it was great to have brothers that played because they they could tell me some real life shit you know like. My brother would be like, don't play – like sometimes if you're going to play to a record or you're going to play to a click or a sequence material, you know, he goes, if you're constantly playing it around it or following or letting it lead you, when it's not there, you're, the people around you are going to impact the time feel. And yeah, you have to be the, the guy that's it. You got to be the rock of Gibraltar, man, and let allow other people to phrase things the way they choose and they'll love you for it. Mm -hmm. And And – so Jerry was one of those guys where up until I met him, I had thought I had that together and we'd be playing a gig. And I mean, and my con if my concentration just went just for a split second and if the, if the momentum wasn't just like rolling, he would feel it instantly and like turn around like you're dragging. <laughs> Uh, You're like, come on, man! I, th I thought well, I was doing yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, and then, I, but the, here's the thing: I used to tape my, I used to tape those gigs. Mm -hmm. I used to tape the gigs, and I would listen back, and I'm like, you know what? He's right. I was dragging. That yeah. you know, uh, I just posted this thing about you know how important it is to record yourself and listen to yourself, and you know, do you know Tris and Bowden? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know Tris, right? So he was talking about when he first started doing these sessions. That he was like, I would listen to the playback and be like, who, who is that guy on the drums? He sounds like crap. And he's like, this guy's pushing and pulling and rushing through all this stuff. And they're like, that's you, man. You know, and he said he was so he was so turned off by his own playing that like, you know, he was like, I just started taping everything that I did and really focusing on. You know, where I'm feeling the time, if I'm pushing, if I'm pulling, if I'm, you know, it, where, how I'm phrasing everything. And he was like, that changed, changed his whole, his whole playing style. How did you do yep. it? How did you develop that muscle? Because that's something different than being like, I need to learn how to play a paradiddle. And you, there's a concrete way of how to learn how to play a paradiddle. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, and it, whatever, and you can, there's a million ways that you can go on YouTube and figure that out. But I, one thing that I always like to talk about is sort of that intangible, the, the groove, the the feel, the phrasing, the time, um, you know, dynamics, all that stuff. Like, how did how did you develop that muscle? Was it just trial and error? Or? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, yeah, for the most part, yeah, man. Playing just playing to records and not just trying to figure out the, uh, necessarily the part but actually trying to get a feel for the feel. Mm -hmm. um, um, hearing, you know, it's, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's when you hear somebody play a, 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 a pocket um, or when you're playing a certain genre of music or you, when you hear someone who has certain vocabulary together, it's, it's usually, it's just a tiny little flavor thing that separates them from somebody who's kind of just mediocre mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying um so i i've always looked for the what's the those little flavor things little things like i don't know i mean like certain things i i figured out over time was you know coming up when i came up again because i'm 46 i did a lot of listening to 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 obviously steve gad and definitely Vinny 
and Weckl, like when that when when Vinny and, and Weckl kind of really exploded on to the scene, um, I was so in there with all that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I listen to, as much as I love R and B playing, um, you know, the whole thing, like for instance, like when you know when you hear somebody play drummers from that era when they play like eighth notes on a hi-hat they do this thing where a lot of times they'll play they'll accent the downbeat and the upbeats will will be lighter and Mm -hmm. it has this like flowing and but later on in life you know i'll you know you find yourself on an r&b gig and you're playing a groove that wasn't even played by a drummer necessarily right you know maybe a machine and the hi-hat part does not have those musical dynamics Mm-hmm. Now, I shouldn't even say musical because it's just a different dynamic. Right. Maybe the hi-hat has no dynamics. Mm-hmm. Maybe the hi-hat is like, ka, 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 ka. And that goes against what any drum teacher would show you. Right. But that's what you need to do to get that flavor correct. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me, I guess the, 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 the best answer I can give for getting some of that stuff together was, again, opening my ears and having people around me, non-drummers, most importantly, telling me. Like that guy Artie Reynolds, I'd be playing a groove, and he'd be like, "Yo, that is not it." <laughs> <laughs> he's like, well, "He's like, I don't hear any bottom, man. Where's your foot?" Right. You know. And I started to also realize, like, you know, with certain when you start playing with great bass players, you start to realize um, uh, how, that you need to leave more space with your foot. Mm-hmm. And if you want to dance around, you do that on the hi hat, right? Versus playing all kinds of little subdivisions in between with your with your right foot, you know, like they're just like little little things like that that you can get from guys that don't play drums that actually wind up helping more than anything else. Sure. More with Brian Dunn, but first a word from our sponsor. Hey, did you know that whether you're a full-time or a part-time musician, you can write off expenses that you have for drumming, sticks, heads, gas, tolls, all of that sort of stuff. Now, there's two options. You can track all those expenses by collecting all of your receipts in a shoebox and sifting through them at the end of the year, or you can get FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a great way for you to track your expenses. You can do it on the go, right from your phone, and you can also use it for tracking time, billing clients, and creating invoices in less than 30 seconds. The best part? You can try it for free today by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer, and be sure to enter drummer's resource in the how did you hear about us section. Start your free trial today with no credit card by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer. This session is brought to you by my friends at DW Drums, and DW has been innovating the drum industry since 1972 when they were founded in the heart of Hollywood, California with Don Lombardi. And you can learn more about DW, their great products, all of their innovations, and the great family that they have over there by visiting dwdrums.com. Did you know that the drum program at Musicians Institute offers a wide range of drum elective courses which can help you customize your learning experience? You can dig deeper into specialized areas of focus like gospel drumming, New Orleans drumming, electronic drumming, transcribing, hand drums, cajon, or even Ableton Live. These electives are taught with passion by the expert faculty at the drum program at Musicians Institute. And you can learn more about MI and all of these great programs by visiting mi.edu. Now more with Brian Dunn. 
I think that a lot of times when we as drummers practice, since there's no bass player, we do a lot of filling in on the bottom end with our foot. And then you get with a bass player and you're like, man, I'm just walk I'm stepping all over what you're playing because I think because, you know, we're it's absent in our practice, you know. Yeah. So we're like, oh, we got to fill that up. There's got to be all this. There's got to be this bass stuff that's going on. And then I, I, I don't tell me if you agree or disagree, but if you practice like that and you get heavy into that and then you get on the gig it's sort of hard to groove without putting all those subdivisions down there on your feet. In the beginning, yeah. you're like, man, I feel like I'm not, I'm actually playing less, but it's, it's harder. And cause it's, I don't have that anchor of my foot filling in all of the other stuff that I'm, that I'm not playing with my hands. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And the, and the, the, you know, you know, also, we're also taught when you're young, it's like, you know, the drums and the bass are supposed to be, you know, together. And like you, you try to get, you try to play patterns with the bass player and stuff. And I, the more I listen to guys like Steve Jordan and Charlie Drayton and these guys and like the guys that I, that have pockets that I personally, that I love, mm-hmm. um, the, and the obvious guys, the Gadsons and, and, you know, it's right. like a lot of times it's just one in three. It's amazing where if you just play one in three, there's almost no baseline that doesn't work with that. Yeah. And bass players will will love you for that. Yep. <laughs> they really will, you know. And for so, all the drummers out there who think that that's boring, if you can make it <laughs> if you can do it and make it sound like Steve Jordan, then you can move on. <laughs> you know, like I think every drummer should take the John Mayer record and listen to that uh I don't know if you've heard the tune but Vultures and it's just like it's just Steve just laying it down. The whole and it yeah. just sounds amazing, and then like I go and play, it and it sounds like <laughs> tennis shoes in the dryer. But you know, um, so I want to I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about I want to talk about first of all the the average white band gig, how that came about. I want to talk about the Hall Note stuff. I want to get into the live at Daryl's house because that is like a super interesting one. It's a it's an awesome show, but just the concept of it. Um, so what came first? So uh, AWB came first, right? Yeah, AWB came first. Um, I was subbing. There's a band called the Funk Philharmonic out in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a Tower of Power, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire cover band, but it's made up of former Tower members. Oh, nice. And the, yeah, and the drummer, the drummer of the band, this guy Lee Finkelstein, who plays with, with the Blues Brothers now. Oh, cool. Um, he used to sub the gig out. You know, that's a gig. Like, if you were a musician on Long Island, that's the band you saw. More mm-hmm. than any other band, I mean, by a long shot. And... I used to go. I used to carry the bass player's rigging when I was like, my brother used to get me in there when I was like 15, you know, just so I could watch because you weren't allowed in clubs at that point. Sure. So, um, I became the sub for that gig, and I used to do it like maybe twice a year. So it was like relearning the gig every time you had to do it. And we were playing at La Bar Bat, and the lead singer was Brent Carter, who was who was the lead singer for Tower of Power at the time. And uh, oh, he had just stopped playing in Tower, but the AWB guys they we they tour with Tower a lot. Right. So AWB just happened to be in town, and uh, Adam Deitch was leaving the band at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, ridiculous shoes to fill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, the, the same, you know, the same shit happened to me with Chuck Loeb. Like Zach Danziger left the gig, and that's when I came in. You're it's like, like great. So, Stupid and daunting and ridiculous. You're like, couldn't you, <laughs> but, couldn't you, like, 
get a worse drummer and then let me replace uh, them? Yeah, yeah. I would not. So if anyway, someone, I think if somebody offered me the gig after Adam Deitch, I'd be like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass. On it. <laughs> he's such a monster, oh my God. man. Yeah, I know, man. I and know. very unassuming. Like he's not a big dude, you know. I but know. He plays know. like he, like he sounds like like a three hundred pound gorilla like behind and i mean that in the best way possible like he just he yeah. has so much power and then you see him you're like how the how, like you're not yeah, a lanky dude yeah yeah, yeah yeah he's just but you know what he you know he's he's i, I want to i'm going to change the subject for a second but he's got something that i feel like what i get from a guy like bill stewart and mm -hmm. that is not that they sound alike but like the first time i heard bill who you know for straight ahead playing Bill and Brian Blade, like those are the two guys for me that are just right. in terms of the the, the modern day guys. Mm -hmm. um, and Bill, I just remember the first time listening to a Skull record with Bill, and my brother and I were looking at each other like, "Wow!" And my brother's like, "He sounds old. This whoever this dude is, we didn't know who he was. We're like, right. he sounds old, like steep in tradition, right? But then you listen a little more and it's like he sounds so modern at the same time right yeah and i feel like in a, in a in a way adam has that like to me you hear the you hear the the old school shit in his playing mm -hmm. you really do you can tell he's a guy that really listened to all that stuff i think that's his dad and, like put, yeah you know, absolutely and i've become friends yeah. i've become friends with his dad actually yeah yeah um and uh you know but he's but he's he's not like he's not dated. So mm -hmm. he may sound like he's steeped in tradition in the R and B stuff, but he's not dated at all. He's super modern too. Right. Without being like a guy who's only modern who definitely had didn't do his homework. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, man, he's I, a he's a bad he's a bad dude. Well, the the first time I ever heard lettuce I was listening to it and I was like, well, for, I was just like blown away by the whole by the whole band. But I was thinking I was listening to the to quote the drummer and I was like, I, I don't know who this dude is, but he's got to be like some 50 year old black dude from the south. So you know, like, you know what I mean? And then and I look it up and it's like I was like, Adam, Dutch. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? I was like, there's no way it's that dude playing on the record. You know what I mean? <laughs> And yeah, man. And he's just he's got it, man. He just. Yeah. Uh, Adam Dutch, yeah, he's, you know, he, what, he's a bad dude. Yeah. So, yeah. So we we played this gig at La Barbat and with with the Funk Philharmonic and the AWB guys there were there because they were there was there were drum auditions set up mm -hmm. a, a couple of days from that point. And Brent Carter, actually, thank you, Brent, if you're listening one day. Uh, Brent is the guy that told them to come down and he didn't tell me. <laughs> And yeah, literally. And I was like, I'm like reading charts. <laughs> and and uh, so we did the gig and I met I met I met the sax player that night, Fred Vigdor. And, um, you know, a couple of days later, I just got a call and it was like, you know what? Alan, Alan was at the gig and they like your playing and we're here auditioning drummers. But you weren't I wasn't even in the running to audition for that gig. Right. I didn't even know that that was even going on. And um, he's like, Alan dug you, but he wants to still he wants to at least play with you just to make sure that it feels right when he plays mm -hmm. with you. But I'm telling you, he likes you. So I went and I and I remember when I went to that audition, I was already work. I mean, I was in Chuck Loeb's band and we happened to be doing a week at the Blue Note that week. Oh, cool. And Michael Brecker was playing with us. And I swear to God, I remember like to me, like Michael Brecker, 
I'm more of a Michael Brecker fan than almost any drummer, <laughs> right? So the fact that I that I was going to play with that guy at the Blue Note, that was like a it was a That's major a life milestone for me personally. Right. And 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 I remember going to audition for AWB in the afternoon of one of the nights we were playing at the Blue Note, and it was the first night I was going to be playing with with Brecker. And I just remember kind of saying to myself, like, well, I'm just going to let it fly. I'm going to be loose because I'm playing with Michael Brecker tonight. <laughs> like, I couldn't even I couldn't even believe it, you know, and it helped me. So I had mm-hmm. two things in my favor. One, they already liked me. Mm-hmm. So I had kind of an upper hand, you know, not, it, it also didn't hurt that Brent was there either. You know, got the, the those guys were like, it's you know, they want to like the way you play, of course. Right. But then they, you know, the fact that I was already affiliated affiliated with Brent Carter, who was the lead singer from Tower of Power, these things don't hurt, mm-hmm. sure. you know. So um, I went into the audition like loose, loose as hell, like I, you know, and and it went well. So I got into that band, and and that was it. And I did that gig for about five and a half years, and then I left the band. I didn't go from there to, to Hall and Oates. Mm-hmm. I actually left that band, and I was playing with Patty Austin. Okay, a great, great singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, amazing singer. Um, uh, talk another time police person. <laughs> <laughs> like that lady, woo! She could feel it. She could feel anything. It's crazy. But she, you know, another person that makes you like completely bring your A game a hundred percent of the times. Um, so I did. I was playing with Patty for about over five years, mm-hmm. and um, and. The thing about the Hall and Oates thing was they there were there were some of the same people that that were in AWB became members of Hall and Oates band. Ah, so I got you. The, the keyboard player for for Hall and Oates now, Elliot Lewis, he was the lead singer. He did all the Hamish Stewart stuff. He was like the co frontman in mm-hmm. AWB for like twelve years. Ah, right? I got you. So he left AWB. Um, he did some playing, I think, with Todd Rundgren. He wound up with Hall and Oates. Clyde, after he left, Clyde Jones came in, became the bass player and also lead singer for Average White Band. He's the bass player for Hall and Oates now. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's really intertwined. Well, um, I, I think that there's like there's there's a there's a, uh, a a lesson there that because I I think a lot of times we don't see the long term of what we're doing. So we're like, yeah. oh, I don't want to do this one gig because like it's pointless to do that one gig or whatever it is. And it's like, well, if you do that gig, you may meet this guy who gets you on another gig, who introduces you to another person. Then you meet this person, this and, that, and it's like and five years later, you're playing in AWB. You know what I mean? Or, or whatever yeah. the case is. It's like if you look at each individual thing of like, how is this getting me to the next step? Then I think you're going to, you know, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities rather than just saying, you know what, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do this thing for what it is and who knows where it's going to leak. Yep. You know, and yep. I, I yep. mean, I, after doing whatever, 270 of these interviews, like it's it's the same shit, you know, like there's yep. there's one thing leads to the next leads to the next. Um, but being closed minded about it, I think is going to uh, it's going to hurt your career in the long run. Yeah. You know, yep. Yeah, so that's how I ultimately wound up there with with Hall and Oates. Basically, the the other thing is this again another situation where you you don't know you you don't know who's watching you. Right. Um, I was in AWB and we were opening up for Hall and Oates. I don't know, wow, seventeen years ago or something, right? And yeah, well, sixteen years ago, 
mm-hmm. maybe because I joined that band in like 2000. It's, right. Oh my God, it's 2017. So I almost made um, like the, a really corny joke, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> Because you were like, you never know who's watching you. And I was going to be like, private eyes. That's who's watching. <laughs> so, I was like, it was super corny, but I was like, I got to I was like, I got to use this one. That's like, I got, that's my, my Hall and Oates joke. Actually, my Hall and Oates joke is when I, someone asked me to go somewhere or like do something that I don't want to do or like, you know, if they're, like, whatever it is, I'm like, man, I'm like Hall and Oates. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I can't go for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's my that's my other uh corny nice. hall notes joke all right i'll continue sorry oh so yeah so we we were opening up for them and i remember saying i remember the bass player at the time of hall notes was a guy named t-bone walk mm-hmm. amazing musician and uh i was watching their set and um i can just remember like i knew every song and that's when it hit me at that point like wow like you can't like I was too young to be buying their records when their mm-hmm. stuff was coming out, you know, but it shows you how deep they are because it was literally part of your life. Yep. <laughs> if you're alive in the 80s, mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, it is impossible to not know their stuff. Yeah, I could sing back. I knew I knew guitar solos. I could sing them back and I yeah. never bought a record. You know yep. what I mean? And um, when we did when we opened for them, that guy T-Bone walk, watched from backstage. He watched our set. And he came over to me and he gave me a lot of really great compliments. And years had gone by. And um, AWB, Patty Austin, all the stuff I had done, I had, you know, I would occasionally either see T-Bone play or, you know, but I, it wasn't like, I definitely wasn't one of his guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always aware of him. And Sean Pelton was like the, the guy, was like one of T-Bone's favorite guys. You know, outside of the Hall and Oates thing. Right. And um, so when the when the Live from Daryl's House thing started, everybody in the uh, Hall and Oates band was in and is in the Live from Daryl's House band, except the drummer at the time. Um, the the old drummer for Hall and Oates before me, um, a great drummer named Mike Braun. He uh, was living, I think, in Portland. Okay. And everybody else in the band lived in the New York area. So every time they'd have to do uh, an episode, I guess it would require flying him across the country. Mm. So I don't know for a fact, but I'm going on the assumption that that's probably why uh, they weren't using Mike for the Life from Dallas House thing. So Sean was doing it. And I remember, man, after all those years, T-Bone called me up and he's like, yeah, we we do this. uh, We're doing this, this little, I don't even know how he described it, but... Like, you know, we get together, you know, we play with other artists. It's really cool. Would you be interested in maybe coming and doing one, subbing for Sean? And I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so I went in there and I subbed for Sean. And uh, more more tough shoes to fill. Exactly. Yeah. Like (laughs) my whole life is following these monsters. (laughs) So, so. Sting uh, calls, hey, uh, Vinny can't do this gig. Do you want to. uh..." (laughs) So. Uh, yeah, so it went well, and I became the sub for Live from Daryl's House, and that was it. That's where it ended. And right around that time, the drummer for Hall & Oates was having some uh, back issues. Mm. He had to have like a, some serious back surgeries, and I was fresh in Daryl's mind because I had done— When you went in there, were you thinking like, man, maybe I'll get the Hall & Oates gig? A 
thousand percent no. Really? Never, I swear to God, in a million years, I never thought that would happen because that that band had been in place for so long. Yeah. Um, and it, and they sounded great. Mm-hmm. And there would be no reason. There was just no reason that I would ever think that that would happen. You know. Right. Um, but I only can. I was only worried about controlling what I can control. And for me, as long as I go in there and do a good job, you know. Because there's a, there's a there's something good about being a sub. There's the pressure when you come in, but one of the good things about being a sub is you, uh, when you come in, you bring something a little different. And um, I mean, sometimes that little bit of difference can be a negative thing, but oftentimes I find that that little thing that you bring that's different is a lot of times welcomed, mm-hmm. especially for if someone's been there for a long time. And then it, you, you, as a sub, you can make a gig sound fresh for the people around you. Right. Especially being a drummer. So. Um, and like you said, so that, it may not be like it's just it's just different. You know, it's yeah, not it's just different. Yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm a, I'm someone that I get those live tapes and I honor what the like a lot of times I don't even I don't I try to listen to both, you know, the original versions of stuff and the live. But push comes to shove. If I'm going to do a gig for somebody. I want to listen to the guy who's doing the gig now, and I'm going to do it as best I can the way he or she does it. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then in me trying to do it the way they do it, of course, it's still going to feel a little different. Right. Right. So that's the way I approached it. And and, uh, yeah, so then I became the sub for Hall & Oates. So now I was like subbing, for lack of a better term, for for Live from Daryl's House and for Hall & Oates. And then at a certain point, they they offered me the gig. Mm-hmm. Some time went by, and then they offered me the gig, and and uh, the Hall and Oates gig or the live at Daryl's house gig. They offered me the Hall and Oates gig. Okay. First, and then once I got the Hall and Oates gig, I think they were, you know, I think I think Daryl was he was put in a in a in a hard position because um, the rest of the band does live from Daryl's house. Right. But at but at the same time. Live from Daryl's house is a separate entity. Sure. And Sean has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. In other words, he has nothing to do with the fact that what does he care if the rest of the band is from Hall and Oates? Right. Yeah. That's yeah, his yeah. gig. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it, it's not like you said, it's a separate entity. It's not like it's not called you know the yeah, Hall and Oates yeah. band or you know like yeah yeah that's I mean and that's John and Daryl have always been that way. John has a complete separate solo career going, and so does Daryl, and they always have. Right. So. So Daryl was put in a hard position, I think. And what happened was we shared the gig. So when we, if we had eight episodes coming up, Daryl would say, okay, Brian's going to do these four and Sean's going to do these four. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reason and how, whatever, as time went on, it just turned into my gig. Nice. And maybe, maybe logistically it just worked out better. It certainly had nothing to do with playing, right. I'm sure. Right. Um, so, yeah. And that gig is really, really. I mean, we are so lucky, man, because there is nothing like that. I let's talk about that. I think it one. I think it's an amazing. I think it's an amazing concept because of who Daryl is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's not just a bunch of musicians getting in a room and putting it on YouTube. It's like first of all, you have Daryl, but then you have all these. F- extremely famous musicians that are coming in have their own vibe have their own thing and it's like you can take someone who has who's a completely different sound than daryl or hall notes and bring them into this situation and it's like okay let's create music yeah so what's i mean we i see what 
what everyone else sees but tell me about like the behind the scenes of of what happens like how what does what does that look like when you know Wyclef comes in and where do you what's what's sort of step one okay like where does it start basically we find out who we're going to play with Mm -hmm. um about a week before and so we'll use we'll use uh we'll use Wyclef as an example we basically find out what we're going to play. We usually play four songs of the guest artist and two songs that are Daryl's mm-hmm. or, or, or Daryl and John songs. It depends. Um, or sometimes just Daryl Hall's solo album material as well. Right. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is so many people, <laughs> so many people, when they come on, they want to do the obvious Hall and Oates stuff. <laughs> right. Know? They want to do Maneater. They want to do Sarah Smile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's like Daryl's like we can't do that on every episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, so we find out the six tunes we're gonna play, and they usually, they usually just. Um, um, do, you still got me? Yep. Yep. Okay, because someone just tried to call in. Ah. Um, so we get the material. It's usually just a record version. Mm-hmm. It's never like a live version, and and we all do our homework individually. We show up the day of the gig. And we get our our monitors together, and at about one o'clock in the afternoon, the artist shows up, and we talk over. We meet them. We talk over each song. We talk over the song we're about to play uh, in terms of form, mm-hmm. and then we go for it. There's no rehearsal. <laughs> nice zero. And we play. We'll play the tune. And Daryl's thing is like we don't stop. There's no like unless it's an absolute train wreck. Once we start something, we don't stop until we're done with done with the tune, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about it at the end. And we play the tune through, and then we at that point we we say, okay, now this is what uh this is what I don't like. This is what I like. The artist has his input, right? And and then we go for another one. Probably eighty percent of the time, the second time we play it is what you see. Wow. And there's no listening back. So like we'll finish we'll finish a take and then Daryl will go oh that felt good next and then the artist will be like what <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me and and like you know can we should, can we listen back to nope. that and he's like no we don't listen back I like it and because like what's you know, the point me, you know like you know yeah I mean I get it now but the the muso in me it drives me a little crazy because mm-hmm. especially being a drummer. Sometimes when you discuss what you're going to do in terms of a form, for instance, it doesn't mean that that's actually what happened. So, so, so you're, so you're reacting when you play and there's nothing wrong, wrong with reacting mm-hmm. but when you're playing, you know, it's not like we're playing music that's conversational. It's, it's, you know, I mean, there's, there's lots of different genres that we are playing, right? but for the most part, in terms of the drum chair, um, when you're going from a verse into a chorus, it's my job to set that up and telegraph that for people. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden the form changes on the fly, you know, now I have to react. Right. And now I'm actually really not doing my job. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it, and so when those things happen or when something's changing and or someone goes to a place where you're not expecting and it wasn't discussed, you it could be a moment of weakness. And maybe it's not that stark. Maybe people don't realize it. But you know that you could have done it stronger. Right. You know? And when you get to, and then, you know, so now I know, like, once, once a song starts, uh, in my, at, my attitude is, this is a take. Mm-hmm. There's, been, there's been first takes that have made it to the show. Nice. You know, I think one of the Joe Walsh tunes was literally the first time we played it. 
I mean, that's rare, but that can happen. And because Daryl is like, I don't care if you made a mistake. I don't care if I made a mistake. Um, does it feel good or does it not feel good? And mm-hmm. he has the he has the cojones to, to go through with that. It's right. like crazy. And he fe- he thinks it's interesting. And I've asked him, I was like, we have the time and the means to play all these tunes. You know, we can play it three, four, five times and it will get better every time. And he's like, yeah, but there's nothing interesting about that. He's like, you're going to, if you know, like, you know, you I mean, you play. So it's like you play something two times. By the time you get to the third time you're going to play it, you've already you've already internalized certain things that you've done in the in the last two takes that you like. Right. So you're going to remember you did that and mm-hmm. you're going to try to do that again. Yep. And you're going to try to eliminate whatever you thought was negative about it. So really what you're doing is you're crafting a part. Mm-hmm. And that's what he hates. And that may not <laughs> go it may <laughs> have gone with the first take but it won't go with the third take, you know? Like yeah. Steve yeah. Dad was saying the same thing that you know he he was like most of the time the first take is the best take because everything is is natural. There's nothing contrived. You're not you're not putting in something that, you know, was there from a take before like you said, you know, and it's just you're totally acting and reacting to what's going on and it's real. Like it's yep. not nothing's contrived. So, yep. I and I agree, man. You get into like third, fourth, fifth take, it almost gets it either in my opinion, it either gets too perfect where it sounds contrived you know or Mm -hmm. it goes the other way and you're like i gotta get oh that fill that i did sounded super cool with what the bass player was doing (laughs) so now i'm gonna do it on every take and it's like well the bass player may not play that same thing this time but i'm still i gotta get my fill in i'm gonna put my because that shit is hip like you know you know and then you do it and you're like oh that's actually not as hip as you know i mean i've had people say that to, they're like man that yeah that thing's not happening i'm like what happened yeah. on the first take well this is the fifth take <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> yeah man you know? But yeah so when we play when we do it it's it's over fast by right. like we start at one by three thirty four o'clock the, the music's done really yeah huh and and then it's more it's just hanging out and eating and i love the eating part yeah but the 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 it's just hanging out and and socializing and and interviews and stuff like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i mean but that there's no other show like that i mean aside from like i guess you know sanborn had night music right years back but there's nothing like this on tv it's mm-hmm. like this is as close to having a tv gig you know like you know i when i was growing up you know for a lot of for like musos, for the guys that wanted that were gonna, pl- you, you know, you you had thoughts of playing music for a living, you know. There's a couple of like, there's certain road gigs that are like the quote unquote ultimate gig. Right. But one of the other ultimate gigs is like being who Steve Jordan was on David Letterman, mm-hmm. right? The, the the TV gig. You right. know what I'm saying? And my buddy James is with Conan, and like, there you go. He's like, he loved. They just got re-upped for four more years. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's such a good the, gig. It's a dream. Yeah. It's a dream. And yeah, how many and, people? How, what? What? Five people have that gig in the in the country? In in the world? It, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So this this gig, I feel like, although it's not that, it's almost the closest thing to that. And, and it is really now, only, right? It's 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 the only thing like it. On TV, really. Because you guys are on VH1 now, too, and MTV, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. like... The exposure's I'm, crazy. It's a TV gig as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I swear to God, I never thought I would say this, but there are times where I'm on a 
the Long Island Railroad going into town and a total stranger will walk over to me and ask me, do you do you play on that that show? Are you a drummer? Really? Like, the UPS man did like two weeks ago before I left for this tour. The UPS man stopped in front of my house and he goes, he's handing me a box and he goes, are you a drummer? <laughs> You're like, yeah, don't tell anyone. It's like crazy. It's see, and I'm like looking over my shoulder like, you're not talking to me, right? Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> you should say no, but I play one on TV. <laughs> I'm actually a doctor, but I play a drummer on TV. I, we just moved. I had like a weird incident where we just moved and we had movers come in. They're packing stuff up. And I had like boxes of like my record. And then there was, I, have the, I was in, you know, drum magazine. So I have it framed. And the guy's like looking at it. And he's like, are you, are you, are you famous? And I said, I said, do you know who I am? And he's like, no, who are you? And I was like, then I'm not famous. <laughs> I was like, if you don't know who I am, then I'm obviously not famous. <laughs> I was like, I'm the complete opposite of famous. I'm like, I meet people 20 times and they don't remember who I am. I'm like, I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> but he's like, no, who are you? And I was like, nobody, obviously. you know. <laughs> crazy, crazy, man. There's a, I remember some baseball player's wife was trying to get in some club and she's like, do you know who I am? And I remember the announcer talking about it. And he was like, if you have to say, do you know who I am? You're not as famous as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Will Smith doesn't walk into a place and say, do you know who I am? Yeah. It's like, yeah, we know who you are. There you go. <laughs> so what are, what are some of, some of the, uh, some of the challenges with, with doing that show because i know that it's a great gig but i'm sure that there's like are there stressful moments or is it like totally just stress-free it well it's not stress-free for for me no uh, i mean i think i mean there's a there's an aspect of it that is stress-free because we're all friends mm -hmm. um this band the other thing i will say is this band socially you know the 23 hours outside of the gig is awesome yeah, I mean, we all re really get along for real. Everybody, every single person, um, that makes a huge difference. Um, and everybody here is a is a real pro. Everybody here can really play. Um, and I mean, you know, you can you can you can. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of hidden. Everybody's has a ton of layers mm -hmm. that you wouldn't necessarily get. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because everybody here. Like I said, they're pros. They honor everybody's on the same page. We are all trying to honor the the music we're playing at right. that moment. And there is nothing else even it's not even like we're trying. Everybody just naturally does that. And so that takes a lot of the stress out as well because everybody's everybody's a team player. Mm -hmm. Um the stress for me comes in that knowing that we're not getting more than a couple of chances at this and you're going to have to live with it and you ain't going to hear it for six months after you told, since you've done it. And the next time you're going to hear it is when you're watching it on TV mm -hmm. and that's a little scary. And now knowing that people know about it is, is a little daunting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I went, I remember going to see, I went down to the 55 bar to see Bill Sims, the blues guitar player. And uh, I thought Tony Mason was going to be playing drums. And it was Charlie Drayton. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, that's an idol of mine, you know. And I remember going in there and and I was waiting, you know, not in literally in line, but there were people talking to him. And at a certain point, I was like kind of next up. I knew I was going to get my way, work my way in there to say hi. 
and he, you know, as I'm approaching him, he's puts his hand out and he's like, Hey man, I ate breakfast today and watched you play. Nice. Yeah. And he's like, love your work or whatever. He gave me a compliment. I don't even know what he said because it was too shocking to, uh, <laughs> you're blown away. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, this, this conversation is not supposed to go that way. I'm supposed to say hi and I'm supposed to bow to you and tell you how much of a fan I am. Right. <laughs> Cause I am. Um, and that's something that that's happening with this show too. And so then I can't help but be cognizant of that. You know, right. when you know that musicians are watching, mm -hmm. it's like, man, you want, I mean, I want it to sound good no matter what. Yeah. I, that and I would imagine it's different than having like the Conan gig because not that musicians aren't watching the Conan gig, but like, it's just a wider audience. But I feel like yeah. live at Daryl's house. Sure. There's a lot of music fans who are watching it, but there's also serious cats who are watching it and not yeah. so, i mean not so serious cats like me like i'm watching but i'm a musician you know mm -hmm. um and yeah there's no playback there's no like on on a tv show if you guys mess something up you're gonna go back and fix it you know yeah but not not here which i think is i think is cool man i think it's like you know tightrope walking without a net i think it i like it <laughs> you know I mean, I, I, there's no doubt it, there's a little bit of stress, but having the choice to do it or not do it. Yeah. That's just, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very overjoyed to be there, you know, right. playing right. with the, o, I mean, playing money, money, money with the OJs. Like you kidding me? It's crazy. <laughs> how, I, how do you, how do you top that? You know, it's insane. Is that one of the, one of your favorite episodes? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's one of them. I, man, the, the. I don't know. There was this girl, Grace Potter. I thought was uh, great. I love Grace Potter. I think she's an amazing singer. I like the Gavin DeGraw one. Mm -hmm. um, I like the Joe Walsh one. Yeah. T, the, the Booker T was cool. Playing Green Onions with Booker T. I yeah. Mean, this I like is how... like... <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm jealous. It's, it's, it's really, really cool, man. Who I was trying to think, who was the original OJ's drummer? Was it, wow. Was it Gadsden? I don't even... Did he play in the OJ's? Um, it would be a Philly guy because that that was they were that was Sound of Philly. Yeah. So it was T S O P. Uh, um, yeah. I'm trying to see. Wow. Shame on me for not knowing this. I mean, I don't, I don't know either because I don't know because I mean. So let's see, real quick. Uh, Gamble and Huff teamed up with the OJ's. I'm just, I'm literally looking it up while we're while we're here, but I don't know. I don't. I th they may have just had a band, you know. Like I don't I don't know if they were I don't know if they had a a new I mean it was the three the three guys but uh, I wonder I would assume that there would be they were they were using this the 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 handful of session guys that were part of Gamble and Huff at, at the time yeah I'm you know what I'm gonna I I'll look into it I'll I'll note it in the show notes because I'm interested to know who it was because I mean shame I'm a Philly guy I should know this too but but uh I don't know off the top of my head so I'm a, I'll I remember I. I remember Daryl was super excited about them because that's well, yeah, that's, he's, I'm those, sure that's their stuff, man. Yeah, because I was I was gonna say he probably grew up listening to them, you know. Yep. That that TSOP stuff is just just insane. All that gamble and huff and man. Yep. Anyway, um, so tell me quickly. I want to be cognizant of your time, but tell me quickly about your. I know that you have sort of your own uh, recording facility that you do tracks and stuff like that for people. Uh, so yeah. tell me basically how that works and if people want you on their record, how that works. Um, I mean, basically, thanks to Chuck Loeb, really. He's the one that got me to do it. I've been doing I've been 
recording tracks in my place and sending them out via the internet for for 14 years now. Wow. Uh, yeah, I jumped in really early. I mean, I know there's probably guys who did it before me, but I, you know, pretty early in the game, I was doing it. Um, and man, it's the greatest thing in the world for me. I mean, there's cha- there's lots of challenges in it, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's, a, it's it's for me. I love it. I'm a, I'm a I can be I can geek out with the best of them. You know, <laughs> editing on a computer and opening up a session and you know hating everything I did and the challenge of you know making it better and it's it's i can i can spend way too much time doing that yeah (laughs) but yeah so yeah i basically just people send me tracks and and uh and i just talk to them about the song as much as i can and you know send them eight mono tracks of drums and they can do what they want with them right i there's i feel like there's a lot of people who want to dive into that now um so I mean, not that you want to give advice to your quote unquote competition, but what would you say? I mean, but like, what's, what do you think that, what do you think would be maybe a niche that people can fill? Or do you, do you see mistakes that other people are doing when they're trying to sell tracks? I think because for, let me, I'll give you my opinion, although you didn't ask for it. Um, I think that, I think that you have the credits behind you and you have sort of the work history behind you and, so people hire you because of that. But I think that a lot of people who don't have that behind them go out and they start this site and they spend all this money and then they're like, all right, let me turn on the, you know, let me turn on the switch to say I'm open. You can hire me for drum tracks and nobody hires them and they get yeah. discouraged because they've never played with anybody. They don't have all these, all these yeah, credits, yeah. you know? Well, I'll tell you this. I, I mean, in the beginning, I mean, 15, 14 years ago, I mean, I still had done some, I had done some, some notable gigs, I guess, but the, the lion's share of the work I got in the beginning, um, was just amongst the musicians I knew. Right. I I didn't, I, you know, I remember, I think I joined sessionplayer.com or there were a couple of websites out, name on a list Mm -hmm. that people would visit. I literally never got a single session from that. (laughs) Um, it was always, it was always word of mouth. Right. Um, and, you know, if I knew if I had a friend that was working on some tracks, I'd be let I'll do a track for you. Mm-hmm. You know, in the beginning, I would do it for nothing. You know what I'm saying? Because right. I was learning. I was learning how to I was learning my way around Pro Tools. I was learning about engineering stuff. I'm you know, that's it's stuff is super deep. I'm still learning like I have. I shouldn't even say I'm still learning. It's like I'm not even close, but it's 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 a lifelong learning process, just like playing. So. um I was mainly doing sessions for friends, but mm-hmm. most of my friends were musicians. And then what happens is what you, if you, if you stick with it, you, when you, the key is to get somebody who takes the time to not, instead of only record their own music, someone that, you know, anybody can put the title producer next to their name. Of right. Um, so, but those are the guys you want to, those are the guys you want to be affiliated with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you once I started getting affiliated with guys that produce for other people, then and then it became, you know, it's it, the whole process is better for them because mm-hmm. now they can say, hey, I can get I can get you a drum track. We don't have to pay for the studio. We don't have to pay for an engineer or the drummer. I can give you all three in one. Right. Right. They pay less. I make more. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, but the other the flip side is sometimes it's a real drag, you know, because yeah. people don't get. The, the order in which music should be made when it's a remote 
yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I'll tell I tell these guys like, I mean, now I have it pretty much dialed in as to what to talk about, and you know, because then because things get tricky with how many time, how many takes you're gonna do. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, before you start to get taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like anything else though, in the beginning, I'd be like, yeah, I'll do another one. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Just, just to, just to make it as good as I can with the hopes that at a certain point, people are going to start to want me. Right. You know? And then you're like, you know what? Uh, one takes good enough for Dower Hall. It's good enough for you. (laughs) 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 That's your, that's your, that's your tagline. (laughs) Nice. I never thought of that. (laughs) Man, you know the the funny thing with the remote sessions, I don't know if you do it, but the thing that drives me crazy personally is you, you have a discussion with somebody about the track and you know the reality is if for me the best thing is to just get a sequence. Yeah. I, I don't need it to feel good. I can give yeah. a shit about that. Yeah. Give me something that's quantized to the nearest 16th note that sounds like a damn robot mm-hmm. because then I can play along super relaxed. Cause I'm not fighting against inconsistencies in time. Yeah. Then you can get rid of that thing. I'm not suggesting that a song shouldn't have feel obviously. Then, you know, then the bass player and a guitar player and a piano player, they can play to me as they would if I were in a room. Yeah. Yeah. And, that makes and, sense. And, and, you know, and then I'll have this discussion with somebody and then a week later I'll get, I'll get the track with a message. Yeah. I stuck on some live bass for you. Give, give you some, some real feel. And I'm like, no, no, don't, don't do that. That. <laughs> that bass player has bad time. Yeah, is it Anthony Jackson, perhaps <laughs> that played bass on it? Because if it's not, I'd rather not hear it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> God, and then I find myself editing something that no one's ever going to hear, just so I can play to it. Yeah, yeah, that's a drag. And it becomes super time consuming. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I also can't, I can't bear to do a take that doesn't sound good or at least to me mm-hmm. so i spent i'll spend a lot of time on a take knowing that they're not going to accept it just so that we can have another discussion and say okay now that i gave you this take tell me exactly what you like what you don't like because the next one is the take is the keeper right yeah yeah that makes it. sense that makes sense rather so, than you know some people something sorry but some people are like just give me give me three takes of each song just do your thing give me three takes and i don't want to do that either yeah, what if you hate takes, all three takes? Yeah, or and I'm not going to send something that I don't like. So now I'm going to spend a real long time on it. And then on top of all that, they're going to Frankenstein the stuff. Yeah. And I then, then you know, wow, that's not me anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess when even when you send them one take, they can, they can Frankenstein stuff too. But it tends to be – it tends to turn out even worse when you're taking apart from – uh, uh, one take and adding it to another take versus yeah. parts within a take. Yeah, who you know what I'm saying? Who was talking? Oh, I, I had lunch with with uh, Kurt Piscara the other day, and he was talking about you know now he'll go into the studio, and they're like, just give me four bars of time. Wow. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then he's like, then they just take it and cut it up and do whatever. They, and they're like, give us four bars of time, four fills, and you know. That that's all, and like a couple clear snare hits, and oh man, and he's like, "That's all we need you for." Yeah, you know, that's like, a drag. You don't hire drag. you don't hire Kurpus Garrett to play four bars a time. Yeah, you know it's what I mean? Crazy, it's crazy. So. I watched your I watched your interview with uh, Greg Bissonette. Oh, did you? Nice, yeah, yeah, nice. And and 
I remember he he was talking about how like you know you go in to do a movie date or something, and now it's like the track's done, and yeah. they can hire you for three hours versus being a part of the whole thing. Yep. And now you're gonna get three three hour slots versus yep. 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 one. Yeah, yeah, you know, so it's crazy. The yeah, time ta- the times they are changing, or they yeah, already yeah, yeah. have. So everybody needs. But I mean, to that's adjust. that's why everybody needs to. Uh, the other thing is you need people need to have their hands tied into a, as many different things and groups of people as they can in this business. Yeah. Cause if you, if you are just serious about making a living, I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you have talent, like, I don't know, Vinny or something, mm-hmm. then, you know, your options are different but <laughs> right. when you're not, when you're not from another planet, um, when you're firmly from earth, like I am, <laughs> You you need to have your hands in a lot of different things, and it definitely will serve you well. You know, mm-hmm. you can get you can get gigs from the weirdest, not weird, from things you wouldn't expect. Like, there's a guy. Uh, I wanted to tell you this because I, it's it's because it's so it's 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 so unlikely that it would happen this way. Right. Um. There's a uh, a musical theater composer, piano player, singer named Jason Robert Brown, okay. who lives in New York City. And he's written a lot of great musicals, and I played on his solo record. And although I'm not really part of the musical theater world per se, there's a lot of drummers that really do a lot of that, and I'm I'm not one of them. But I did hook up with Jason, and Jason and his and when I say musical theater, I mean Jason is is he's I don't want to say he's not like a pop writer either, but like he rides the line between. You know, he's super talented. And um, he wrote the musical 13. Okay. And Ariana Grande was in that. Mm -hmm. And Ariana Grande loves Jason. So when Ariana Grande did her new record, that last record, Dangerous Woman, she's like, I want you to write a song on my record to Jason. So guess what that meant? That meant I play drums on Ariana Grande's Dangerous Woman record. Right. Right. And that's absurd to me yeah not absurd but it's like how like if you said <laughs> if you ever thought you'd play on, a, on an ariana grande record do you think you'd get into it via a broadway a musical mu- theater a musical, a musical theater. theater composer right right nope it's unbelievable right yeah. it's it, to me it's i i mean it's awesome and it's and it's well deserved for for him mm-hmm. she loves him for a reason he's great so it's like and there's so many things like that that my, happened. my buddy got the gig for Cage the Elephant because he shared a rehearsal space next to them, and their and their guitar player quit, and they were like, "Hey, you sound good. You want to join our band?" <laughs> hey, that's uh, wow. Who knows what can happen? I mean, wow. there, was, there was a little bit more to the story, but like essentially, that's what happened. You know? Wow. And you just you never know, man. You never. Yeah, know. you don't know. You don't know. You got to make the best of whatever in- situation you're in. I remember Rodney, man. I remember Rodney Howard. And me and we were playing in the same club date office in Brooklyn, playing in the same in, in wedding bands. And like I was in one band, Rodney was in another band. Henry Hay, great keyboard player, mm-hmm. and Mike Rashuti and Tim Lefevre, all these guys. We were all in the same wedding office. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy. It's crazy. But you can't, you know. We were all making money. Well, that's, we were all, you know, that was part of that's part of the reason you, you club dates on the weekends. You know, that's mm-hmm. a that's a huge part of it. But there was, it's not like you could make the most of the 
the hang there too because like right. those guys are great the, so. the interesting thing about about the the wedding dates and all that stuff i remember a while ago and not to name drop it i i was having lunch with ndugu chancellor and he was talking about the difference between players now versus players when he was coming up and he was like everybody owned a tuxedo everyone played club dates they played you know casuals they played cocktail hours they did you know they would go he was like i would work in the studio for michael jackson during the day and then play like a casual that night at you know at a country club and he was like now people don't want to do that and they either want to be like playing in front of 30,000 people at a stadium or or they're like every other gig is beneath them and i and i I can't speak to it because I'm I'm not old enough, but but from what he was saying, he's like just the general attitude of people has changed over the years about like what's acceptable as a gig, and people are like embarrassed to play wedding gigs or casuals or be a right. weekend warrior or whatever it is. And yeah, I don't know, man. I just think if you're out there playing drums and you're you're getting paid to do it, like life's pretty it's, good. It's a great thing. Yeah, that's crazy. I I personally, I I. I operate when I go home from the road. I operate like I don't even have this gig. Mm -hmm. In my mind, this gig doesn't even exist. Right. I still play. I still go down on Tuesday night and play a cafe. Wow! If I'm home on a Tuesday, I will play down there and make you know very little money. Right. But play some great music with some great musicians, and you know you can't get lazy. It's crazy. Even if you don't, I mean, I can't imagine not wanting to play anyway. But even if you don't want to play, to assume that a good gig that you may have at the moment is just there forever is crazy. Yeah. Stuff changes. And w and then, so you can't, you can't constantly be reestablishing who you are. Mm -hmm. You have to constantly, you got to be out there and people have to know you're around. Yeah. Even if you're around just a little bit, mm -hmm. it's worth it to keep it, keep it going. Yeah. Look at Will yeah. Lee. I don't know how well you know Will Lee. I don't know Will him personally, is, but like, I know, I know Will obviously. Yeah. Like this guy, this guy is like he's awesome, man. Like he, you know, you would think that someone who had when he had the the the, the Letterman gig, mm -hmm. um, you know, like there was no slowing him down. Yeah, if you live in New York, you could see Will playing at a club on some random night of the week very easily. Always, yeah, still constantly playing. Yeah, and he was doing it. And but he the, the thing is, he was doing it in the midst of do, having that awesome gig. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. And it's like, yeah, that's that's what it's all about. That's mm -hmm. awesome. I mean, look so, at Keith Carlock. Like, he'll get home from Steely Dan, and then he plays at 55 Bar with Wayne Krantz. You know? Yep. It's like, yep. and I don't know. I just feel like if you, you're you probably not going to get too far if you have that mindset and that, that ego of just like, oh, no, man, I'm, that gig's below me, you know? Ugh, yeah, no way. You know what? Times Actually, what's happening now is times are are, are hard enough because, you know, the, the, the cost of living is so crazy, mm -hmm. especially in New York. And, you know, bar gigs, the pay hasn't changed, Yeah. you know, in years, right? So people are starting to realize some of the people that would never do a club date, they're doing club dates. Yeah. And some of the people that, that would look down or, or didn't want to do Broadway, they're absolutely doing Broadway. Yeah. Um, you know, they used to be Broadway. They used to be Broadway musicians, and 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 certain kind of road musicians sometimes wouldn't you wouldn't find them in the on a, in a Broadway pit. Now, 
all bets are off. Yeah. Everybody's work trying is, to get a Broadway gig now. <laughs> work is work. I did one Broadway gig. I did it for six. I had it for six months. I was very, very lucky. It was the music of Earth, Wind, and Fire. It's like if you're gonna do a, you're gonna do a, a Broadway musical, man. This was the greatest music to play. And I got to, we got to, I got to audition for for Maurice White, who's like one of my heroes for sure. Yeah. And um, it was called Hot Feet. It was short lived. It lasted, I think, five or six months. Oh, okay. But um, um, Maurice White came to New York, and he was like, you know, usually, usually Broadway contractors hire their boys. For yeah, those, yeah, always those spots, you know. Mm-hmm. And if and you're not even going to get considered for a chair unless you've at least subbed mm-hmm. on some stuff. I don't know if you talked to Rodney about that. I think Rodney has subbed on some geek. On yeah, some he said stuff. he was he was subbing. Um, Lion King, maybe. Yeah, and well, I thought there was another one. Um, the Rock. I think he did. Uh, yeah. Um, ah. Because Clint DeGannon, I think, was the drummer. It's not rock for the ages, but it's something like uh, hairspray. Hairspray. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think he did hairspray, and that yeah. Clint DeGannon did that. And uh, Clint's a great drummer too. Um, and you know the the so usually if you, if you're not in that world, you're not going to get a chance at that. So you got to you got to pay your dues by by getting in and learning a book for someone else and subbing, which is really daunting. Oh right. my god, that's that's pressure. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I su- I audition maurice white was like well the contractors can choose but i'm going to take part in this because if my music is getting represented i'm going to have a say or nice. there will be no show so he came he flew to new york and he auditioned bands and me and that that bass player i told you about Artie reynolds and a guitar player named keith robinson um a great player we auditioned and he took all three of us <laughs> maurice chose us for the gig and at that time that's what that's kind of what made me quit it kind of got me out of Average White Band because I was in AWB and I started playing with Patty. But Patty, Patty's thing was not a thing where we would play for like weeks at a time. Right. Patty's thing was like we were a trio. It was me and Mike Rusciutti and Tim LaFave. And we would play either as a trio or in an orchestra. They'd bring us around and we'd, we'd play with like for four days with the Cleveland Symphony or that kind of thing. Right, right, right. So um, we auditioned for Maurice and he took us. And they were like, okay, you got the gig. And then I had to tell the average white band guys, uh, when you when you take a gig like that, the first two months you're on lockdown. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you you, t- you can't miss anything, and that was sort of the that's what that was the turning point. What where Alan Gorey, um, when I told him what I can and can't do at that point, he's like, okay, well then it's time. Right. And I was like, okay, it's time. Let's do it. <laughs> and then yeah, and then Rocky Bryant took the gig. I got a monster. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So the the Broadway thing, man, it's it is no joke, man. Yeah, it's a tough world to get into, but once you're in, you know, you're you're sort of in, you know. But you gotta pay your dues, just like anything else. Yep. No matter who yep. you are, it's like touring and Broadway. They're like two totally, they're totally different. Two worlds, different worlds. Right? Yep. Yeah. And I, again, you know, I got I got lucky, lack of a better term. I got to audition, right. which is rare, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and yeah. and I was playing a lot of R and B music at that point, and I'm a I'm a huge Earth Wind and Fire fan, so I felt you know as home as I could anyway personally playing sure. that stuff yeah. and playing it with two guys, playing mm-hmm. it with Artie and Keith is like you have to be you know way less than mediocre to sound bad <laughs> right. with those two next right. to you, right. you know? Yeah. So Definitely. that's the thing. That's the thing. That's the thing, man. That's the last thing I want to just say this quickly, if I can. You can the, say whatever the, you want. this thing about you could be a great drummer man and and you could be playing a a a certain feel or a certain pocket and if it doesn't feel right you know 
all too often people will turn around and they kind of look at look to you for how it feels. Mm-hmm. And although we have a huge impact on that, if the rhythm guitar part is not right or the bass part is not right, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's collective. Yeah. And and so when you play, that's why a lot, oftentimes the guys that we all think are great, they sound great because they're great, but they also sound great because the people around them are great. Right. <laughs> it's it's collective. It's it's like, you know, it's not like seeing someone play with a really shitty band. It's hard to sound good in that situation. It is. You know? It is. Um so when you when you have the opportunity to do it with guys that are really great, you can't help but sound good. Mm-hmm. It's almost, you know? I equate it to when you're playing with mediocre musicians, it's like swimming upstream, but then you start playing with guys who are, <laughs> who are, it, it's like challenging, you know, it's work. But then when you play with guys, I remember when I first started playing with like Papianki, the organ player and uh, Johnny DeFrancesco is a guitar player. Um, like, I was like, I felt like I was just like sitting on top of everything, you know, like it just, it was so easy. Yeah. Oh man, that's what that. Oh, okay. I see what's going on here. You You start saying to yourself like, "Oh, I I can do this." Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you're like, everything just felt good, and you're loose, and you're like, you know, there's so much room, and you know, know, but I agree though. It's it's a collective thing, and you know, you're only what do they say? You're only as good as your weakest link, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm with you. Yeah, and the and 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 the that if when when you're aware of that. And you come with the, with just playing. I don't know. I does another thing. I heard you talk to Rodney about was like hearing a guy who play. I said, how did he say it? Someone who plays with an agenda. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's hilarious, man. Because it's it's so real. It's like I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't even get that. <laughs> well, that's why. <laughs> that's why you have the gigs that you have. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I I mean, the proof is in the pudding, my man, you know, (laughs) like that's, that's why you have those gigs is because you don't play with an agenda and you, you're there to serve the music. It's why I, I think me, my, in my, uh, opinion, I I was going to say professional opinion, but we're going to leave the professional word at out of there. (laughs) Um, but I don't know. Like, that's why, that's why I get people get hired. That's why I've, I've got hired. That's why you get hired. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. because you're not, you're not serving, you're not serving your own agenda. You're just serving the music. And it's like, Hey man, I'm here to, I'm here to put forth the collaborative effort. And I got no ego, no agenda. Like I'm just, I'm just here to play, man. I want it to sound as good as it can. Yep. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. I've seen so many guys when I was like, man, in like in the late eighties with the whole Vinny and Weckl explosion, there've been, I can, I can remember being at like wedding band, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, showcases mm-hmm. where there'll be like five wedding bands in a room yeah. and bride and grooms come in yeah. there to like choose <laughs> and seeing like seeing drummers playing like sugar pie, honey bunch. And they're like displacing the, <laughs> displacing the groove by a 16th note or, or by an eighth note or something, you know? And they're like, yeah, and, this is and like, cause they can, it's yeah. so crazy. <laughs> exactly. Just because like, you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and then band leaders just with confused looks on their faces like what is he doing back there? <laughs> I'm doing and my like, I'm doing my this guy. <laughs> doing my weckle, right. And then they're spawning 
a whole generation of band leaders that hate this guy named Dave Weckl and Vinnie Caliuta. Yeah. yeah <laughs> what yeah. they don't realize is those guys do it in musical situations where it actually belongs. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, oh, man, I mean, I could go on for a long time about this, but I mean, I've told this story numerous times on, on the podcast, but like, I remember years ago I was in LA and there was this drummer who just played over everything. And like the bass player gets a solo and he plays all chops all over that. And he chops all over the piano player solo and everything. And then they're like, let's give the drummer some. And I'm like, I'm like, give the drummer. I'm like, dude's already had a lot. Like he doesn't need any. Get, uh, let's give the groove some. You know, I don't know. But anyway, I like people play how they play. That's fine. But I think that if, you know, I think what, what we're both saying in our, in our uh, crotchety old man way of saying it is that like, if you want, if you want gigs, like you got to serve the music, you know? And like, yeah. and you can still have chops because like you said, Vinny and Dave and all those guys, like they have ridiculous chops, Brian Fraser Moore, Eric Moore, like all these guys have chops. But like when Justin Timberlake hires Brian Fraser Moore to play, like he plays what you know, what is right for the music period. Yep. You know, absolutely. So you have that groove and chops thing together and not just out there like because the audience doesn't give a shit that you can play, you know, paradiddles with your feet at 300 BPMs. (laughs) They just they just don't. Right. Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Because I I, can't. I would get zero gigs. (laughs) What's that story? Can you hey, can you play uh, paradiddles with your feet at 300 BPM? Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you play uh, like all over the bar line and all that stuff? Yeah, 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 I can do that too. Did I get the gig? It's like, no, that's why we fired the last guy. <laughs> so, all right, we're going off on a tangent. We're, I'm going to wrap it up. But uh, so if if people want to connect with you, people want to follow you, keep an eye on, on what you're doing. One, I recommend that they go see you guys on tour. Two, I recommend that they watch live from Daryl's house. Three, they can find you at your website, right? Yeah. Is it yep. is it BrianDumbMusic.com? Yeah. BrianDumbMusic.com. And then I'm get you're on Facebook and you're on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, Twitter. Yep. All yep. that stuff. Uh, I'm I'm not all of it. I think I'm uh, I have Twitter. Okay. I don't even I don't even <laughs> I'm bad. I'm kind of a troll on Facebook. I don't really post a lot of stuff, but You're a lurker. All right. A lurker. <laughs> so don't follow him on Twitter because he's not gonna get have any updates and don't become friends with him because he'll just lurk your photos. <laughs> no, I'm gonna do a better job with that. I have a friend I have a friend that that's like man you have to get that stuff together you do man you gotta because i think that i know i know that people want to people want to see like the behind the scenes stuff so like if you can get on there like even on instagram and just like share the stuff from the road and and just showing people some things that that maybe they don't get to see every day i think that's super interesting Mm -hmm. and especially it's hall notes so like come on you know yeah man oh it's one great. one last question so you is alan stone on tour with you guys or was yeah. he such yeah. a, he's amazing man. oh by the way shame on me for, for not saying that's one of my favorite episodes that yeah. dude is that dude is badass yeah he man i remember hearing him when we found out we were going to play with him mm-hmm. i had found him on the internet nice. and I, I like i called the dudes in the band i was like hey get ready next week this is going to be real. <laughs> yeah. I saw him. Uh, my buddy Chris is in OAR and I went to see OAR and Alan opened up for them and I was just blown away. I was like, man, this dude is the real deal. So 
yeah, some so go out and see Alan with Hall Notes. Go see Bryant. Do all of that, definitely. And Tears for Fears is is playing too. Nice, nice. Yeah, man, Great that's band. A, I'm a, I I gotta come see you guys. So um, yeah, so so it, I'll put all the links to everything in the show notes that people can find you. They can connect with you. They can hire you to play on their records because I know that there's other people than drummers that that listen to this podcast. So. Um, and I want to thank you for one, for, for taking the time to sit down and, and chat and share your wisdom and two, for keeping the, uh, the dream alive that people are going to keep serving the music and playing the groove, man. I, I appreciate cool. that too. So thank Thanks, you man. for, Thanks so much. yeah, of course. Thank you for being part of this, man. I, I really do appreciate it. Cool, man. I'm honored. Likewise. Really cool. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate All it. Right, and, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. So there you have it, the one and only Brian Dunn. I hope you enjoyed that. And for the links to everything that we talked about, you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 274. I recommend, I highly recommend two things. One, go checking out Hall Notes on tour because they're amazing. And two, checking out Live from Daryl's House. And you can find the links to the tour dates. You can find the links to Live from Daryl's House and all that fun stuff just by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 274 and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening i do appreciate it i'll be talking to you soon peace